These are the Greek Myth Files, a close look into the Greek mythical story world, its gods, its heroes, and its monsters others. Each episode features a story or broader topic that we dig into, analyze, and try to explain in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to another episode of the Greek Myth Files. We're smack in the middle of Season 3, which takes us to the far reaches of the Eastern world, and we're about to set sail for the land of the Colchians, a land ruled by the Son of the Sun, Aetes, and where the Golden Fleece resides. In today's episode, we'll discuss the famed ship Argo and its crew, the Argonauts. Many of the most famous heroes of the Greek world take part in the voyage, and we'll give you a few names in this episode. But, as always, we provide visual aids on our website, a map, lists of the Argonauts as the ancient authors give them, a picture of the Argo, and, of course, the original art by our student artist. So, sit back and relax, and take in another episode of the Greek Myth Files. When we left off last episode, Jason, the man with one sandal, had just agreed to the terms that Peleos had set for him. He would give the kingship up to Jason if he were to successfully bring back the Golden Fleece. Now, there were just a few problems with this. First, how was Jason going to travel to the far ends of the earth to fetch the fleece? And, if he found a way, he would certainly need help. It would be impossible for a single person to man a ship that could sail across the Aegean, through the Hellespont, the Sea of Mamara, and finally the Black Sea. And when he got to Colchis, would he be able to take the fleece back all by himself, especially if the locals put up resistance, as was likely? In other words, Jason needed a ship, or rather someone who could build one for him. And he needed people who could help him row, a captain who could steer a giant vessel, and some pretty tough characters who could survive a long and certainly treacherous trip into parts unknown. The Argo, the ship that carried Jason and his crew, was already known to Homer, who called it world famous. In the Odyssey, the famous epic poem about getting home, the magical sorceress Circe tells Odysseus about his own future travels. Either he would have to travel through the clashing rocks or sail between Scylla and Charybdis. Neither of these two choices was great, and both were dangerous. The former were two giant cliff faces guarding a narrow strait of water, which would suddenly crash together. And Scylla and Charybdis were similar sentinels, though Scylla was a monstrous woman with six ravenous dogs growing from her waist, and Charybdis was a massive seething riptide that swallowed up the sea and spit it up several times a day. Circe reminds Odysseus that only the Argo had ever passed through the clashing rocks. And when it came time to make a decision, Odysseus chose to take the other route, telling us that the path that the Argo took was very treacherous indeed. Many scholars believe that the travels of Odysseus were modeled on a very early myth of the Argonauts, but we don't have any early poem that tells us the whole story of the Argo. Instead, we only get bits and pieces. But the Argo was famous for its voyage in the earliest period and continued to be a source of pride to the later Greeks, especially those who lived in and around Iolcus, who minted coins that bore an image of the Argo. And eventually the Greeks named a constellation in the sky after the Argo. The following is from an ancient constellation book written in Latin, which was adapted from an original Greek source, so the author has to translate Greek phrases and uses the Latin name Minerva rather than the Greek Athena. The Argo. 
Some have said that this ship was called Argo in Greek because of its speed. Others say it's because Argus came up with the idea and built the ship. A lot of people say that this was the first ship on the sea, and for this reason its shape was recreated out of stars. Now Pindar says that it was built in a town in the region of Magnesia, which has the name Demetrius. Callimachus, however, tells us that it was in the same area where there is now the Temple of Actian Apollo, which the Argonauts are believed to have built when setting out on their journey, in that spot which is called Pagasai, because, as the story goes, the good ship Argo was first constructed there, the verb for which in Greek is Pagasai. Aeschylus and some others say that Minerva added to the ship a piece of timber that could talk. Now, there's a lot going on here, but one gets the immediate impression that the Argo and the stories that were told about it, as well as where it was said to have been built, were of great importance to later Greeks. Even though the Argo held a special place in the mythical story world, there was a lot of debate about it. In the snippet from the Constellation book narrated earlier, we saw that there was some debate as to how the ship got its name. Now, it was common for later Greek writers to try and figure out where mythical names came from. As we saw, some ancient Greeks associated the name with the Greek word Argos, which can have the meaning of something like swift, an apt name for a ship. In other words, the ship's name would have been a reflection of its best quality, cutting quickly through the sea and its billows without a hitch. Others, however, tied the name of the ship to its builder, someone named Argus. Here's the trouble. Argus was an extremely common name in the mythical story world. Not only was there a major city called Argus, the guy who founded that town was also named Argus, and there was a different Argus, the all-seeing Argus, who was from the town Argos. Odysseus even named his dog Argus. You get the picture. But there were two other Arguses who were also candidates for the builder of the Argo, which we find in a note attached to a line in Apollonius' great epic poem, The Argonaut Adventure. In this note, the commentator reviews how Apollonius' work compares to other versions of the myth. Apollonius names the Argo after Argus, the one who built it, but Phersites says that it was named after Argus the son of Phrixus. They say that this was the first ship, but others say that when Danaeus was being chased by Aegyptus, he built the first ship, which is why it was called the Danaeus. Listeners of this podcast may have had their ears prick up when the name Phrixus was mentioned. This is the same Phrixus who was saved by the golden ram that would become the golden fleece. As we mentioned in episode 13, when Phrixus reached Colchis, he married the king's daughter and had four children. One of these was named Argus, and in this version, Phrixus's children must have made it safely back to Greece before the Argo set out to fetch the fleece. With all of these people having the name Argus, there is a lot of confusion, and later writers went to great pains to figure out which Argos built the ship. But let's focus for a little while on another question. Was the Argo the first ship? As you might know, the Greeks were fond of asking the question, what was the first X, or who first discovered, say, agriculture or mining practices to get precious metals? 
In fact, the historical Greeks almost always attributed important discoveries to people from the mythical period, which adds legitimacy because it places important cultural achievements in the distant past. And because the Argo was really famous in mythical songs, it makes sense that it would have a special status. And it's probably this that allowed some people in the ancient world to say that it was the first ship. But it wasn't. As the note read earlier tells us, there was another famous ship that predates the Argo. To put that story into context, we need to back up a bit and tell the myth of Io, who was a wanderer in her own right. The setting is in the city of Argos, which is located on the Peloponnese. You can see it on the map provided on our website. Io was a young woman, a priestess of Hera, and she caught the eye of Zeus, who came down to Argos, raped her, and when confronted by Hera, quickly turned her into a cow. Hera, suspecting something was up as it always was, asked Zeus for the cow as a present. Unable to say no, Zeus gave her the cow. As it happened, Hera decided to have a local man watch over Io, and that local's name was, you guessed it, Argus, the all-seeing one who had eyes all over his body, such that one was always awake and watchful. Zeus sent the god Hermes to lull Argus to sleep and then kill him, thus allowing Io in her cow form to get away. But Hera continued to torment Io by sending a gadfly to annoy her and to drive her all over the world. In her deep torment, Io first went north through Thrace and eventually turned south and had to cross over into modern-day Turkey by swimming across a narrow strait, which took on the name Bosporos, or cow crossing, and it is still called that today, the Bosporus. The fantastic city of Istanbul, called Byzantium in antiquity, now sits upon the strait, which is also called the Strait of Istanbul, but many still call it by its ancient name, Bosporus. Anyways, Io continued to move south until she reached Egypt, where she regained her form and gave birth to her and Zeus's son. Fast forward several generations, and we come to Io's descendants, a pair of brothers who, like most mythical brothers, don't get along. Their names are Danaos and Aegyptus. Danaos and Aegyptus. Yes, the latter brother was created in myth to explain where the name Egypt came from. At any rate, Danaos had 50 daughters and Aegyptus had 50 sons. The two brothers squabbled over the kingdom, basically which would rule Egypt. And when Danaos realized that he would prove no match for his brother and his 50 sons, he decided to get out of Dodge. But how? As it happens, the goddess Athena was paying attention, and she basically helped Danaos build the first ship. He put his 50 daughters on board and escaped, eventually returning to Argos, where Io came from, and starting a new lineage there. There's a lot more to the story, but we'll save the brutal murder of Aegyptus' sons for another episode. But because this episode involving Danaos happened chronologically well before the Argonaut adventure, it has the title of the first ship. There's also the detail in Apollonius's Argonaut adventure that not just one, but three of his crew were already experienced ship captains. So it's pretty clear that the Argo's claim to fame was not that it was the first ship, but that it was the first ship to travel to the far ends of the earth. There is one more detail about the Argo that we need to touch on. That is the detail that Athena, or Minerva in Latin, installed on the ship a special plank that had the power of speech. That seems weird, I know, but it was a piece of wood taken from an oak tree in the sanctuary of Zeus at Dodona, where he had a special oracle. 
This prophetic plank of wood will be helpful at times to the Argonauts, but we'll leave it aside for now and come back to it when it makes a dramatic appearance. Meanwhile, as the Argo was being built by someone named Argus, Jason had to attend to another matter, getting some help so as to accomplish his mission, to sail far away to Colchis to retrieve the Golden Fleece. So Jason sent word out across the Greek world looking for volunteers, and strapping young men from all over answered his call, a summoning of the best heroes Greece had to offer. These men became the Argonauts, which in Greek means sailors on the Argo. You might recognize the element naut or naut from the English word nautical, meaning dealing with seafaring or sailing, and the related word navigate originally meant steering a ship. And of course, our modern word astronaut or star sailor is a play on the ancient name, as is the word cosmonaut or universe sailor, which is given to the Russian equivalent of an astronaut. At any rate, turning back to antiquity, different authors provide us with different lists of Argonauts. Here, to get us started, we'll provide the earliest list from the rock star poet Pindar. It also happens to be the shortest. There are a lot of strange-sounding names and genealogies given, so we'll break it down all after we get to the reading. Jason himself at once sent messengers everywhere to announce the voyage. Soon there came three sons of Zeus, son of Cronus, untiring in battle. One dark-eyed Alcmena bore, Heracles, and the two Leda bore to Zeus, son of Cronus, Castor and Polydeuces, and two high-haired men, sons of the Earthshaker, obeying their innate valor, one from Pylos and the other from the headlands of Tyrannus. You both achieved noble fame, Euphemus and the wide-ruling Pyroclemenus. And from Apollo the lyre-player came, the father of songs, much-praised Orpheus, and Hermes of the Golden Wand sent two sons to take part in the unabating toil, Echion and Eridus, bursting with youth. Swiftly came those that dwell around the foothills of Mount Pangeon, for with a smiling spirit their father Boreas, king of the winds, quickly and willingly equipped Zedes and Calais with purple wings bristling down their backs. And Hera kindled in the demigods an all-persuasive sweet longing for the ship Argo, so that no one would be left behind to stay by his mother's side, nursing a life without danger, but even at the risk of death would find the finest elixir of excellence together with his other companions. I'd like to make a couple of points here. First, Pindar's list focuses on the Argonauts that are sons of gods. Zeus's son Heracles is the greatest Greek hero, and the other two sons of his are mentioned as Castor and Polydeuces, who are famed for horsemanship and boxing, respectively. Poseidon's children follow, as does Apollo's son Orpheus, the famed musician. Next are Hermes, two youthful children, and finally two important sons of Boreas, god of the north wind. These are Zetes and Calais, who have marvelous wings on their backs and have the gift of flight. There are a lot of names to keep up with, so we provide you on our website with the list of Argonauts in Pindar's poem and Apollonius's epic Argonaut Adventure, the latter of which has 53 Argonauts named. These are only two of the many lists the ancient Greeks had, but you can find a good and decent comparison on the Argonaut Wikipedia page. 
The second point is that all these heroes come from all over the Greek world, from Cape Tainaros on the southern tip of the Peloponnese to Mount Pangaeon to the far north. In other words, this is not just a single Greek hero taking on a monster, but a collection of Greeks working together. And because of this, we call the Argonaut Adventure one of the great Pan-Hellenic events in myth, meaning that participants come from all over Pan, Greece, or ancient Hellas. There are other Pan-Hellenic events, including the hunt to kill the massive Caledonian boar, and most obviously the Trojan War, which was sort of a world war at the time. Pindar's list of Argonauts is very selective, probably because his poem was not long and lists can be quite tedious, and he probably knew of more heroes that were associated with the voyage in oral myth storytelling. So, around a few heroes that were always included, other heroes could be added or dropped depending on the aim of the poet. And, as politics in the historical world changed, the locations where Argonauts were said to have come from could also change. One of the early maps my students and I built was a comparison of Apollonius's geography with that of the Roman Valerius Flaccus, who later wrote another epic poem on the Argonaut adventure. As you can see on our website, the later Roman included figures from northern Macedonia, while Apollonius stopped south of that. With the Argo built and fitted with provisions, and with the Argonauts assembled and rested, it was time to leave. When radiant dawn with her bright eyes beheld the towering crags of Pelion, and the headlands washed by wind-driven seas stood sharp and clear, Typhus awoke and quickly roused his comrades to embark and fix the oars. At that same moment there came an awe-inspiring call from the harbor of Pagasai and Pelion Argo herself, who was chafing to be off, cried out, for she carried a sacred beam from Dodona's oak, which Athena had fitted in the middle of her stem. So the Argonauts followed one another to the rowing bench-chest, and, taking their allotted spaces, sat down in their allotted spaces, their equipment beside them. Anchias sat amidships beside the mighty bulk of Heracles, who laid his club nearby, and made the ship's keel underfoot sink deep into the water. And now the hussars were hauled in, and they poured libations on the sea. And with that, the Argo was off, the Argonauts plying the oars to the time of Orpheus's music, like young men bringing down their feet in unison in a dance, blades swallowed by the deep salt sea. The prophetic plank calling the men to their stations also shows that the gods were giving their blessings to the undertaking. All the gods looked down from heaven that day, observing the Argo in the spirit shown by her heroic crew, the noblest seamen of the time. And from the mountain heights, the nymphs of Pelion admired Athena's work and the gallant Argonauts themselves tugging at the oars. The centaur Chiron, son of Philyra, came down from the mountain to sea, joined by his wife. She was carrying Peleus' little boy, Achilles, in her arms, and she held him up for his dear father to see. This is a very touching scene, where Chiron's wife lifts up baby Achilles for his father Peleus, one of the Argonauts, to see as he sets out on a voyage from which there may be no guaranteed return. 
you yourself can easily imagine looking back at your son as you pull out the oars, and even though the poet does not explicitly tell us, I can't imagine that Peleus would not have shed tears at the sight. But this scene is also clever for another reason, in that the Argonaut adventure was set in the mythical story world as occurring exactly one generation before the Great Trojan War, and Achilles will become the most important and famous fighter for the Greeks in that massive world war. So, while Peleus, the father, sets out on the Argonaut adventure, Achilles remains but a baby, waiting for his chance to sail across the sea and fight in Troy. Well, that's it for another episode of the Greek Myth Files. In the next episode, the voyage starts in earnest, and we'll cover some of the adventures that the Argonauts encounter as they travel toward Colchis, including the episodes involving the Lemnian women, Phineas and the Harpies, and a very unfortunate case of misidentity. But that's for next time. In the meanwhile, I'd like to thank our voice actors, Julia Summer and A.J. O'Neill, our sound engineer, Samantha Kutsia, and our artist, Alina Podgurski. As always, our theme music has been provided by Jared Sims. That's Sims with one M. You should buy and listen to his music. That's it for this installment of the Greek Myth Files, signing off for just a little while. See you next time.